Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome back to the GeoMob podcast. This afternoon, it's my enormous pleasure to welcome back a previous interviewee on the podcast, my best mate, Ken Field. Ken is a world-renowned cartographer. He's a Nottingham Forest fan, stupid as it may sound. And most (laughs) importantly, he's one of my best mates. And he has been the person who's taught me more about making maps and what not to do than anybody else. He's a cartographic specialist at Esri. And he's already the author of the highly acclaimed book, Cartography, Full Stop. His second book, Thematic Mapping, is just about to be published. By the time this podcast goes out, it may well have hit the e- an ebook store near to you. So, welcome, Ken. Thanks, Stephen. Um, great to be back. Thanks a lot for having me back. This is great. Good. So, I seem to remember when you finished the first book, which was a magnum opus. You said that you would never write another book. What on earth happened? Yeah, that's, this is like the Steve Redgrave moment, isn't it? You know, yeah, don't, yeah. don't get me. If you see me back in that boat, you know, haul me out. <laughs> I mean, as you know, when you put your heart and soul into a really, really big project, it, it just drains you, right? And I thought I had one crack at making the the book that I wanted to make, and I did it. And I was I was thoroughly exhausted by the end of it. Honestly, you know, the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes is is unfathomable and a, a good friend of mine alberto cairo was actually over in redlands and he, he was looking through a, a final proof of the first book just before it got published and he stumped me completely before you know he'd finished just flicking through he said what are you going to do for your second book and i said i'm not going to write a second book I, i've got nothing left to say it's all in here and he just looked at me with this sort of wry smile and said you will you'll write another <laughs> and uh you know, slowly after the first book came out, I just, you get, you get that sort of itch. It's, it's like, you know, it's like going back to your football team every season. They're going to disappoint you, but you've got to keep, you've got to go back and you've got to keep doing it. And, uh, you know, being a a sort of an ex academic, I've always, I've always written stuff and, you know, whether it's blogs or papers or, or, you know, chapters in books. And I thought, I wonder if I've got another idea in me. And I, it just started to gel and another idea Mm. and, and it goes from there, and before you know it, you're you're off and running. It's been quite a long journey, though, hasn't it? I mean, this wasn't a quick book to write. Well, yes and no. I mean, ever since I've I've been working over here, I'm, I'm up to ten years now in California. I've always made maps of electoral data, sometimes for personal curiosity, but also, you know, as a as a way to show people how to make thematic maps. It's it's good data in order to capture people's imaginations and attention so i've always taught workshops using thematic maps of electoral data i've built website galleries showing different ways to make maps of the same data set and it all started to come together so a lot of the the groundwork had already been laid and that gave me a good platform for which to you know discuss the the option of a new book with with the people at work who make the decisions so there was already a rump of work there. But yeah, you're right. It, transforming it into a book and then having to come up with the design, the plan, and it, it's, not, it's not a short yeah. process. Yeah. No, far from it. And you're in California, I'm in London, and we 
typically will get to chat with each other once a week uh, mm-hmm. for some reason or another. And I've sort of been following on at close quarters the progress of this book. <laughs> and it, it really is a marathon. For people to understand that, I think you need to explain the underlying premise of the book because yeah. it's called yeah. thematic mapping, but it's got a subtitle. So maybe explain that. It- yeah. Uh, and before I get to that, I remember most of this book was actually written during, you know, effectively what we call lockdown. So, you know, I'm mm. sat at home writing it and actually being able to chat with you and other guys uh, weekly has been a real catharsis because I, I can, you know, I can talk about it and I can discuss yeah. it with, you know, friends and colleagues. Um, so, yeah. So the book is it's thematic mapping. And the original subtitle was This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. And we'll get to that in a minute. The the published subtitle is 101 uh, Inspiring Ways to Visualize Empirical Data because it, it's it's more obvious than what you're going to find when you open the book. You know, that tells you there's 101 maps, charts, graphs, plots, and, you know, it's a way to showcase how you can, you know, design to communicate. But the tagline, this is my truth, tell me yours, is something that I've I've long held as a, a really interesting quote, and it was originally attributed to the British Labour Party leader, Anurin Bevan, uh, in the, the early 1970s. And I, actually, various philosophers have, have had before that, you know, versions of it. But this is this is where this particular quote comes from. And it's his way of, of saying, OK, this is my viewpoint, but I'm open to listening to your viewpoint. And that statement is usually based around you might have a different view of exactly the same data that I'm looking at. And isn't that interesting? Right. Yeah. You know, because da- data is, is often not completely, you know, black and white. It's, it's often the shades of the truth. And you, you may very well read something slightly different out of a data set than, than others might. Interesting so. that in the context of a book about the 2016 election, because almost immediately following the election, we had alternative facts coming out of the mouth of Sean Spicer. Yeah, exactly. Which is actually, it's the complete opposite of this. And in fact, I think you remember I did a talk about fake maps soon after that, which was inspired by one of the maps that inspired you to write this book. Right. Where And actually what Spicer was saying was complete opposite, you know, because you're talking about the fact that, here are the facts, and we can look at them and draw different conclusions from them. And this is a guy saying, if I don't like the facts, I'm going to find create new facts that support what I want to say anyway. So, yeah, that's an interesting spin that came out of that. So why the 2016 election? Why not the 2020 election? Because I'd already got half the maps made is the honest answer. Right, okay. You know, I'd, I'd already created a gallery of the 2012 Obama-Romney election. I'd made probably 30 or 40 maps of the 2016 election. So we're talking about 2018 when I, I mm. proposed the idea of the book. And the, the idea was that by the time the book was published, the 2016 data would be a historic data set rather than a current data set. And, you know, the book the book is apolitical. There's, there's no intent to portray any kind of bias one way or the other and the danger if you're using a current data set is that people might all always infer that you're putting a spin on it in a particular way and i didn't want that at all and and sure 2016 was was contentious you know it 
caused waves. You might argue 2020, maybe even bigger waves. So maybe, yeah. you know, maybe maybe not not a good data set to use either. But but interestingly, when I was talking about this back in 2018, um, to get it off the ground, you know, we had the conversation about, well, can you use other data? And of course you can. And that's part of the point of the book. You know, it, I, the fact that it's electoral data is really rather immaterial, other than it captures attention. I mean, I could have written a book about... 101 ways to visualize agricultural data or, you know, <laughs> re- retail sales or something. And I don't know, would you pick it up and read it? I, I probably wouldn't because I think you need a, I think you need a data set that's, that is going to just pique people's interest. You know, it's just something, oh, I wonder, I wonder, what, wonder how you make maps of this particular data. And I'd always been asked questions that said, okay, Ken, so what what map would you make of this? Or if I were a Democrat, what map could I use to persuade my base to support me? Or if I were a Republican, you know, what what map would I put on the wall? And and the answer is different for each one of yeah. those questions, right? And that to me is fascinating. So we, we decided to go with it, and and I, th- I think it's it's a great data set to to use, and it I, also helps helps you know for future election cycles somebody can go through this book and say which which map is going to speak to me which map is going to be useful to me in the context of what i need to do whether it's campaigning raising funds gaining support showing that the other side's you know beatable or or not in a particular area there's lots of ways you can read read this and i think the 2016 election has a very interesting facet to it which is unique or maybe unique to America, which is that one person won the majority of the votes cast by quite a significant amount, and the other person actually won the Electoral College and got into the White House. And so there's the opportunity to look at the individual votes, all 130-odd million of them, and there's the opportunity to look at the 600-odd Electoral College votes seats and how they were distributed. And so it gives you a great opportunity to sort of show the nuance of the election, because it's not all just about this guy won and the other one lost, which you couldn't really do with an agricultural data set or shopping (laughs) behaviour or ATM usage of ATM points or any of these other things that we could map. Uh, But they'd be all good maps. Yeah, we should make maps. So (laughs) when I read your cartography full stop. And just for listeners, I have to point out that the full stop is part of the title (laughs) of that book. But when I read that book, you told me this is a book that you dip into, you think about something that you want to learn a bit about, and you go to that section of the book. This is a different book, isn't it? I think this is a cover to cover read. I think so. The first book, in fact, just to go back, you mentioned Sean Spicer a minute ago. And Literally the week that Cartography Full Stop was published, he came out with that famous quote, you know, these were the numbers, period. And, and we were all like, oh, no, what's he, what's he done? So he almost, you know, he almost he preempted the, the, the book's the title. title. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Um, so, yeah, so the first book was written, literally each spread was a separate component and you dip in. Mm. This This is very much chapters. And so there are there are nine chapters, each one dealing with a broad theme of maps. So area-based maps or point-based maps or cartograms or charts. And I've collected, 
you know, maps that you would expect to see, hopefully, into those chapters. And and you can read it from start to finish. It, it almost goes from the most commonly seen map types to the least common towards the end, from perhaps ones that are very standard to some, you know, kind of interesting ones, but perhaps with less general general use. Yes. And I think for me, when I was reading it, there was a journey that I went through, you know, and I went through the obvious maps and, you know, the map that triggered probably you and me, the county level map that Donald Trump had in his office, which was nearly all red. And and gradually you go through other representations and you get to a point where you're seeing, I won't say the best, but some of the most illuminating ways of presenting that data. And then you move into some of the, I won't say, yeah, let me say wacky. You know, I mean, there's some <laughs> of them are, some of them are very innovative and brilliant. And then some of them are challenging, but I can see why they might be of interest to an audience and everything. And it's a great journey through all of these maps. And, and you learn a lot along the way. So that, that county know. map, that county map that, you know, you said, that uh, Donald Trump had on his wall. I, let me let me emphasize right now. There's nothing wrong with that map. No, uh, you know it, it's correct. The data is correct. The, the the data is properly represented, and it's exactly the map I would put on the wall if I was a Republican president. I mean, I would. But yes, people question it because there are very very. It's it's at one end of the spectrum of how yeah. you portray that data. And yeah, there are some wacky things in there, but yeah. I, I think that's important because. You know, maps, you know, they appear in statistical reports, they appear on the front of newspapers, they appear, you know, on the web. And each of those mediums and each of those audiences might require a different approach. And you might be trying to hit upon a particular thing as well. You know, you might want to capture attention rather than just very soberly tell somebody the results. Yeah. So I've only seen a digital preprint of the book, which has meant I've had to read it on a big screen sitting at my desk. It's it's exquisite. I mean, I thought the first book was lovely, but this one I think is even more beautiful. There are these massive maps. They're sort of hand annotated. There's, I mean, It's just a beautiful layout. And the more you read it, the more you enjoy exploring the maps. You must have spent an enormous amount of time having made the maps on actually the layout and all the embellishment that goes into creating each double page spread. Yes. <laughs> Simple as that. I mean, okay. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it, it, I, I took the same idea as I took into the first book that, you know, if you're going to say these things about design and you're going to talk about how the maps do or don't work in particular ways, you have to be able to, you know, demonstrate it yourself. You can't just throw the maps into any old layout and hope they work. So a lot of work does go into thinking about how to to lay the, the maps out. Uh, and I'll, I mean, I'll let you into a little secret. So the, the map's designed as a print book, okay, but it's coming out as an e-book first. But the, the gutter down the middle, because of the shape of the US, mm-hmm. it demands that you, you push it over two pages, right? If you If you limit it to one page, you either have to have a book that's basically landscape in format just to accommodate the shape, or you have a very small map on the page. So we decided to go with 10 by 10 inches. Oh, no, I've, I've assimilated. I'm talking in inches now. Um, so whatever 10 by 10 is. There you 25 go. 25 centimetres, everybody. 
Right, which means then, you know, you double that, you've got, you know, 50 by 25, and it fits beautifully. What that does mean is you have to be extremely careful where the gutter lies, okay? Because if you come from a town or a city that now falls in the gutter of your book, they're not going to be very happy. So the care that went into making sure that the gutter was positioned on almost the most unpopulated parts of the states where there were no towns or cities wow. and that the la- the labels were offset to either side so that the gutter is free. So there's basically no nothing, you know, there's not a right. lot in the gutter. And that's, that's the level of care and attention that I think you have to go to if you're going to, uh, otherwise people are going to be critical of it and, you know, that's their right. But I, w- I want, I want them to focus on the maps and the messages. And, and the other thing about the design is I didn't want it to be a textbook I wanted to perhaps show people some of the care and thought that goes into the process of making the map, which is why there are the hand annotations. So it's almost like a marked up version of an atlas that might go to an editorial phase before it goes to publication. So it's it's basically got all my hand scribbles uh, all the way over it. And and it is my handwriting. I mean, I, you, right. you know, hopefully you can read it, but that's, that's my handwriting and, uh, you know, you just, it's just scribbled ideas, it, you know. I can't say it enough and not because you're my mate. It is absolutely beautiful. And, I, you know, when people read it, they're just going to, to love holding this book and reading it. But one thing Thank that you, came Stephen. to me looking at these maps, and even though I'm looking at them on a screen, not on paper, was that you and I are both have grown up as digital geographers. We've spent a lot of time using different tools. You will use one set and I'll use a different set and manipulating data and doing all of this kind of stuff. And we've sort of got used to all of the snazzy stuff that you can do in a web map and you can layer it and you can zoom in and you can bring extra data in and you can click on things and stuff happens and wipe overs and all of that shit. (laughs) When you look at the book right? You've got one shot at it, right? Every one of the 101 maps is a page and a third, I'd say, of the United States with some annotations around it and about two thirds of a page of text explaining what you're doing and why you did it. And there's no interactivity in that. And it creates a whole load more challenges for a cartographer, because you've got one shot at this, you've got to decide what to put in and what to leave out, which you don't have to do so much with a digital map. So, yes, no. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I did, I did come out of you know schooling with with hand drawn techniques and you know building an, an atlas page as a final year student project, which took nine months, and you had one shot to get it right. So I kind of come from, the, you know, that 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 training of, you know, you get one chance and you get one map and all the decisions to do with scale and size and colour and typography and all of that. And yes, it it just happens to be that this is a static map. There are web equivalents of most of the maps in the book on a a gallery of one of my map galleries. And and the the difference there is you have zoom and pan and that's the opportunity and and click events. So all you do is, is that the mapping project, the mapping potential becomes a problem because instead of designing one map you've maybe got to design six maps different scales that all work seamlessly with one another as well so you know the the interactive is not just a case of putting more layers on or taking them off or there's a lot of design goes on to 
how you make sure each scale melds with the next one as people zoom in. Otherwise, you get these really jumpy, horrible, you know, you know, one map to another map that looks quite different. So there's different challenges with with web maps, and I think both both have you know massive potential and, and utility. And what I would say about a web map that is much better than any print product is is the ability to to click and interact and to recover information. Yeah. Um, there's vir- there's virtually no map in this print or ebook version where you can actually get the real numbers. You can't see them. No, no. But you, you could one... if you're clicking on a map. You know, yeah. it's, here's a pop up. Here's the percentage votes for the candidates. Here's some stats. Here's some other information. You can't get that yeah. from this kind of product. No. Yeah, but on the other hand, that single printed version gives you one shot at conveying information, and yeah, as an information designer, that's the challenge that you have every single time, isn't it? How do you get that information? There's the dog. Hi, Wesley. Hey. So, listeners, we're joined by Wesley the dog. <laughs> if he barks a lot, we may have to pause while Ken goes and strangles him. Hey, Wes. Wes, shut it. Thank you. So, Ken, 101 maps. You've got to have some favourites. Yeah, there's there's. I actually like some of the the very simple but basic maps, and you know the the Coropleth map, which is the sort of area shaded one, gets a lot of bad press, but people understand it. It's it's useful. You know, it it helps people. But I guess if I was going to just stretch things a little bit, um, I do like the what we call a daisymetric dot density map, which is one dot per person. And the dots have been, I think the technical word is smooshed into different areas where people live. So rather than having them randomly placed in counties or states, we use an ancillary data set, which is basically where people live and and move the dots around because empty space doesn't vote. And why we have these maps that exhaust space with color when you know that's that's not where people live and work and vote i don't know so i like i like that map it's to my mind it's if we go back to the title it's kind of as close to the truth as i think is possible so you get this wonderful mix of red and blue dots and there's an awful lot of purple because actually yeah. you know the the you know you, you don't you don't find many places that are 99% one way or the other a lot of them are you know 52 48 and 55 45 and so on I like that one. So another map I really like is is the one with waffle grids, which, you know, it's exactly like a Belgian waffle, and each of the cells is filled with the colour of a candidate. Um, and you immediately see across the counties or the states actually how similar patterns are, voting patterns, because, you know, th- there's a lot of states that you might imagine were very Republican or very Democrat, and they're not. They're, they're you know, 51 49%. It's... Um, and that reveals that information in the data. So I like that one for that that purpose. And and just one of the curiosities that I, I created just for kicks really is I created a map with profiles across the states. So uh, if you can imagine a profile chart, a, a chart, if you like, a line chart going across the states uh, at various vertical intervals. A transect. So you end up with maybe. Yeah. Transect. Transect. Yeah. And, you know, there's maybe 20 of these across the map. 
and you red is above the line and blue is below the line and so you get this sort of wave across the states and it that looked like a lot of stripes to me and then i thought well i better put some cities on here to make make people aware of where these transects are cutting through and i thought well this is obvious to me i'll make them stars yeah you know and so so i've got a map of stars and stripes and it just riffs off the flag and it just it's not that it's not going to help you understand the election very well, but it'd be good for the cover of a book. <laughs> and, and quite honestly, it was a it was nearly a, the cover of the book because it just had that yeah you know I, evocative image. It's a great image, and I liked. I was trying to explain to my wife. You know, I told her we were doing this interview. And she would say, how can you make 101 maps of the election sort of thing? And I said, well, there are lots of ways and there are different things that you could look at. But the one, the one that I loved and explained to her was the nobody map, the one where you mapped the people who didn't vote in each county. And you, when you look mm. at that map, all of a sudden you see that if you've got blue for Democrats and red for Republicans, which we all expect, but you now map the number of people who didn't vote. In 85% of counties, the people who didn't vote beat whoever actually did win the election. And it's a very... We sort of know this when we hear the figures that there was 56 or 60% of the population voted. But when you see it on a map, it really brings home the extent to which people are unengaged and it's just the the sort of passionate people on both sides of the political divide who are voting, and so many people mm. are not engaged at all. So I thought that was a great map. So you, so now now this is what the maps do, though, isn't it? It starts to invite questions about the theme that you're mapping. So we're actually we're, we're veering into political territory here just because the map has evoked a, a series of questions. But it, yeah, that that map of of apathy, I guess, is it's phenomenal. Which which actually goes to show you that. You know, when these people are out campaigning, they are going for such fine margins. They're probably not going to convince somebody who's likely to vote for the opposition to vote for them. But if they can get 1% of those people who normally wouldn't bother voting, that, that could be massive. Yeah. And and maybe that's actually what happened in 2020 because the the, the turnout was, was far more than it was in 2016. And, and maybe that's that's how... How Biden did it, I don't know enough about digging into the data to know that for a fact, but and maybe it would have helped. And maybe that's why there is such an argument going on about voting rights and who should be allowed to vote mm. and who shouldn't be allowed to vote. So, and of course, countries like Australia have mandatory voting. Yeah. So, you know, would that help? Would we get a, you know, a different map if if there were if it was compulsory voting in the UK or the US or wherever? I don't know. I don't know. So I know there are no maps that you don't like. Because if you didn't like them, <laughs> there's, you'd a probably... few, there's a few. There's a... <laughs> well, if you did, really didn't like them, you wouldn't have put them in the book. But there must be some that, whilst you've put them in the book, you're not sure about them, or you don't think they work particularly well. What in general doesn't work well in these maps? I think if you're trying to overload the symbology and you're trying to put too much information into it, and there's a couple in there mm. where which are pretty close to the edge, and and you know I might might argue they're, they've gone a bit far, or if you be if you're going to be trying try to be too cutesy, yeah. you know, you're trying to riff off an, an aesthetic that really doesn't match the theme of the data yeah. that you're trying to portray, you know, or, or you know, you can you can try and put humour into a map through using interesting symbology, and you might find that funny, 
but I can guarantee you other people this is going to be somebody who really doesn't yeah. do not find that funny. And, and that's a very important point when you're dealing with data set that is, you know, potentially contentious as much as it is, you know, very meaningful. You know, you can't you can't play around with people's feelings in that sense. You know, if, if you're making a map of, I don't know, just just anything footpaths. I don't know. I'm just picking that out of thin air. Just, you can't really annoy people if you just start to use sort of earthy tones mm. and you know symbology that looks like a you know gravel or it's just not. Nobody's going to care. But with certain data sets, people will care. Mm. So and um, it, and I've come a cropper once in the past making a map with some fer- fairly graphic graphics on my death in the grand canyon map and uh yeah i overdid it mm. and i had to own that one and when i redid the map i Changed got rid of, of of all of all of that stuff because i i hadn't appreciated just quite how impactful it, it was to certain people and i there's a map where you use the donkey and the elephant mm. which are apparently popular symbols that are used to describe to delineate the two parties. And that worked really well for me. You know, I I liked the way that worked with the sizing of those symbols and everything that worked. But then you had the map with the the smiley stroke sad faces. And that one to me just, you know, there was just too much going on there. And you had to look at each face Mm. and see whether it was smiling or sad and everything. And it just was too much for me. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I'd probably agree. The interesting thing about the, the donkeys and the elephants is they're not the they're not the official symbols of the two parties and in fact if you dig into the the reason those symbols came about they they were basically verbal assaults on the opposite yeah. party you know you're a donkey you're an elephant and what are the characteristics of those animals and how are they ascribed to to the candidates but they've they've stuck and you know they're very well-known symbols and and if you can use well-known symbols that often helps you get the information of your map over uh, the, the other map you're talking about is the chernoff face map and that is a very contentious way of designing symbols anyway purely because you can get into a lot of trouble with stereotypical you know face designs and not many people would choose to use that representation i thought it kind of worked here because you're dealing with two real people you know these are the two people these are the two faces so it's not it's not stereotypical it is as they are but i do totally agree that interpreting what those faces mean with all the different elements the way the eyes look the mouth is turned up or down the you know the size of the the nose for instance that it's challenging yeah i, I don't think i've made that make that map for anything no. frankly and i found but, but you can it, it's a technique yeah. that people do you know do use and sometimes and i think loads of times when we've been talking about maps you've been encouraging me to think about how you can do more with less rather than just keep adding stuff into a map. And and I found that the simpler maps, which didn't try and represent too many different aspects of the data, were much easier to read. I mean, for example, I struggled with those bivariate maps. And then I turned over the page and, oh, my God, there was a trivariate map. And I, <laughs> I, I mean, I must be honest, I looked at that and I just thought, no, I'm not even going to try and understand this. And I'm sure it works for some people, you know, who can hold all that stuff in their head. But I think one of the challenges when you're looking across a map and comparing areas is 
if as you scan the map you have to keep going to the uh to the legend and trying to identify where on the legend that element of the map is and what does that mean and then the cell next to it and you've got to keep doing that it's very difficult to get that data from the map and you might be better using a table or some other form of chart but that was a personal thing you know and like you said you know well you, you hit, you've hit the nail on the head there i mean that's exactly the point if you can make a map that doesn't need the legend then that's a map that works mm. the more you have to refer to the legend i mean it's actually a a perceptual thing your eyes are moving constantly and your eyes are moving away from the map to something else and by the time you've understood and you've moved map back to the map your eyes and your you know your cognitive processing are doing different things yeah. now they're trying to process something else so yeah there's a, there's but it's it's back to that overload of symbology yeah. um you know a univariate choropleth easy mm. bivariate a little bit challenging, but can be useful if you want to show correlations or associations. Trivariate, I think that's you know, it's technically feasible, but I personally, I think it's too much in yeah. most situations. Yeah. So if you were teaching a class today and you had to give a couple of top tips for your I, students. I, I retired from that. Well, I moved on from that. I'm dragging you back. I'm dragging you back to the classroom. Just for well, our don't list- make me mark any work. No, 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 no marks, no exams. But for our listeners, All right. give us your top tips for making thematic maps. Firstly, don't be afraid of using good, solid, tried and trusted techniques. You know, the things that are probably in a list of defaults in whatever software you use, they're probably there for a reason. They are solid, they're well understood by most map readers, applying good, sensible design to those tried and trusted techniques, you you can't go far wrong if you're just wanting to get your message across and communicate. Now, you might want to do something slightly more experimental and explore different techniques to see whether it perhaps, you know, gives a different look and feel to the data, perhaps brings out a different nuance and experimentation is great. I always say to uh, to people, go beyond the defaults. You know, d- defaults are there for a reason. They have to be there, and they're normally well chosen. But that's not the the end of the mapping process. Going beyond them can reveal an awful lot of stuff. The one thing I would say is that you don't necessarily need to publish the results of your experiments. <laughs> I quite often see a lot of lot of people just you know they say, "Oh, I've made a map. I put it on the internet," and you don't have to. I mean, there's plenty of maps that sit on my hard drive that nobody's ever seen because I've looked at it and I thought, actually, that's a bit crap. <laughs> I don't, it, it's, it's, not, it's not doing the job that I thought it might do. So you don't have to publish. And then maybe finally, work within constraints. You know, there's always a, a sort of a cost value budget. And by that, I mean, when, when you're mapping something that's current, like an election, and, I mean, you know, for instance, you're in a newsroom, you've got to make that map within seconds of that data becoming available. Otherwise, somebody's on a different website. So you might not have three weeks to finesse your map. So it doesn't have to look, you know, fancy or, you know, be over-designed. Sometimes a good, simple, you know, map that's easy to produce is is good enough, you know. Okay, I like that. And I think uh, I'll add one tip of my own, which I know you you will agree with, is before you publish a map show it to somebody else and see how they respond to it. Because when you're working and focused on something, you can get into a tunnel 
and you just can't see the wood for the trees. You can't, you know, you can't see another way of looking at this. And sometimes just sharing a map with a colleague, a friend, and asking them what they think of it just before you publish mm. it is a useful tip as well. It, it's just proofreading. Yeah. That's all it is, yeah. and you you would get people to proofread a manuscript, get them to proofread a map. There's maps that aren't in this book that friends and colleagues of mine have said it's not worth publishing that map. And there's maps in this book where it's been out for peer review, and uh, it, it's come back. and And I've I've implemented some fairly major changes actually, and you know it's made the maps much better. So you have to stand back from your personal connection to the map and not be too proud about it and say, this is, this is all my work. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be everybody's work. So get some, get eyes on it. Professionals and, you know, lay people, you know, do you, do you get it? Is this, this is what you're asking. So we're not all making maps of elections and elections come round every two years, every four years, you know, I mean, most people who are interested in maps or making maps regularly make a lot more maps about other things. What lessons can people draw from this book when they're making a map of forestry data or agriculture or ATMs or something else? This is the entire point of the book. It might be of passing interest to people with interest in electoral data but to me, it's just a book about thematic maps. It's just a book of techniques, you know, 101. Actually, that's a lie. There's more than 101. But around about 101 techniques that you can apply to pretty much any thematic data set you've got. Some will work optimally. Some are going to be better than others. You marry your data with your message with a suitable technique, and that's, that's the sweet spot. And, and in fact, I'm not the first to have done this. Actually, Jacques Bertin in his semiology of graphique, did the same thing. He mapped, I think it was agriculture, industry, and tourism in France using 100 different techniques. Right. And, uh, you know, I've just basically borrowed his idea and um, reinvented it with just a different data set. Somebody could write another book tomorrow, same idea, different data. And just as you've said that, it occurred to me that some of the techniques that I said I didn't like, that I thought were too complicated, whatever else, I could see how I could apply that to a completely different data set and context, and yeah. they'd work brilliantly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not that they're a lousy technique. It's that they're a technique that wasn't particularly effective in conveying electoral data, but in a different context, maybe with less symbols appearing on the map because you were looking at – Europe by country, for example, where you've only got like 30-odd charts on it, and they would work with those things. Yeah, I totally agree. You could think about the book as really just a, a catalogue of examples mm. or, a, you know, a sort of pick – you go to the supermarket pick and mix, and, you know, one day you're going to get a fruit salad, and the next day you're going to want a midget gem. Yep. Just, you know, pick, pick whatever works. Okay, so this – is this the last book or have you got something else planned? <laughs> well, so you're the first person that's asked me that, I think. It's got to be I something. I don't know. I mean, write, writing a book in lockdown has been something, mm. I tell you that. And, you know, waiting for it to, to finally be published has been a journey. Yeah. So at this very moment in time, I'm not going to write another book. But I told Alberto exactly the same thing. And I've got a couple of ideas. Well, but you know, I might take a break. Yeah. 
I, I'm sure you will take a break because there's some work to do on publicising the book and I guarantee it will appear in a conference presentation in some form or another. But I've got to do other work as well. Yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're not going to just let, they're not going to pay me to write books for the rest of my career. No, that's but for certain. I think actually, <laughs> a, a, you know, a shout out to Esri who do pay you to write books in part of your time. You know, it's pretty cool that you yes. work for a company that actually lets you write books about cartography, great books about cartography. Yeah. You know, and no, it's amazing. Yeah. And the support I get from them to enable me to do that is, is I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure there's a, another company that would allow no. that or support that. I don't know. So hats off to them. It's wonderful. Anybody else who had a particular contribution to the book, apart from Wisley the dog? Keeping yeah, you saying, I mean, there's there's too many to mention in the blog because we'll go over time. Mm. They're in the book. I've, I've mentioned people by name, but you know, particularly during this very difficult period where we've been working from home, you know, I have very very much valued friends and colleagues who, you know, are happy just to talk about it. I can bounce ideas around. I send them drafts of maps, and they send me comments back. It's been it's been great. So that that, that community aspect of of geo i guess more generally does come to the fore when you're doing this kind of what at first might seem to be a very lonely process you know you're on your own writing a book but actually it's the product of so many so many others as well and and that goes all the way to the people who write the software that allow me to make the maps you know these are people that are never going to get credited but I, i do want to credit them because without the software i can't make the maps and there's no maps but more than anything my partner linda she sort of supports me doing all of this she's she's my biggest critic and also my best friend and it helps me so much yeah. you can't you can't do this kind of thing without someone there helping you along and so i've put up with you the, the, the books i've put up with you books. moaning for half an hour here and there <laughs> she has to put up with you moaning endlessly i'm sure i oh, know it's yeah. it oh yeah i'm sorry so <laughs> We've run way, way over, which is great because it's a, of course it's, it was <laughs> an absolute certainty that we were going to run over time. All I can say is, if you love maps, and particularly if you're interested in politics, but even if you're not interested in politics, this is just a stunning book to get your hands on. How can people get their hands on the book? Where's it going to be published? It's any online retailer. You know, I could we won't name say it. the Amazon word, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. If if you want to buy there, you can buy there. There's any anywhere you can buy electronic ebooks. You can buy you'll it. find it. Right. Okay. And if people want to get in touch with you, give you feedback, ask you questions, how do they do that? Um easiest thing is ping me on Twitter at Kenfield. Okay. There's a, I've got a, a blog, cartoblography.com. There's contact forms there. Feel free to email me. Okay. And I'm just gonna thinking there's also the the map gallery that you talked about we'll put the url for that map gallery into the show notes so that people can go and have a look at some of the maps online before they go and buy the book but what i would say to anybody is when you look at these maps in a gallery and you can explore them and they're great maps the gallery doesn't do is really tell you the story behind the map and why it works and what works and what the considerations were and that's what for anybody who wants to make maps the book helps you to make better maps which is a great thing to do ken it's been a pleasure 
Cool. Cool. Yeah, no, thanks, Stephen. It's, it's been great fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.